Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations and tell stories that meet at the intersection of race and real life. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and the self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here today because I have a really special guest joining me on the show. On episode 21 of My American Melting Pot, I'll be having a conversation with author Layla Lalami. Layla is the author of the book we've been reading in the My American Melting Pot book club, The Other Americans. She's also the author of several other award-winning novels, including The Moore's Account and Secret Sun. A native of Morocco, Layla is a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. If you recall, in the My American Melting Pot book club, We read books by authors of diverse ethnic and cultural backgrounds who tell stories that explore cross-cultural connections. Books are selected because of the quality of their writing, the uniqueness of the story told, and the possibility for a transformative experience after reading. The Other Americans is a perfect fit for our book club because it deals with all of our favorite topics, race, identity, family relationships, culture clashes, and love. It is so good, but you don't have to take my word for it because The Other Americans was just nominated for a National Book Award. Now, before we can get to our conversation with Layla, you know we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by The Truth. Tell the truth because it will always set you free. And if you don't tell the truth, you're a liar. The truth. Hello, Melting Pot community. If you're listening to this episode in real time, then today is November 1st. And you know what that means. There's just three more Thursdays until Thanksgiving. Yes, Thanksgiving, that all-American holiday that's based on a lie. A lie that whitewashes genocide in the world's largest land grab and transforms it into a palatable story about happy Indians breaking bread with grateful European pilgrims. Here at My American Melting Pot headquarters, we know Thanksgiving is a lie. Go back to listen to episode number one for a refresher on just how big of a lie it really is. So we want to ensure that this Thanksgiving, things don't go down the same way as they have in the past. More specifically, we don't want to continue to perpetuate the same myths about Indigenous people being willing participants in the Thanksgiving fairy tale, particularly for our children. I recently wrote about this on the My American Melting Pot blog, but I'm saying it here again because not everyone reads my blog. I know. Anyway, recently my daughter looked at me and said, Mommy, are Native Americans real? I was shocked and horrified that the daughter of a diversity diva like myself could come to the conclusion that Native American people were some sort of mythical beings of the past. I tried to figure out where I had gone wrong. But rather than beat myself up, I just knew I had to catch my daughter up with reality. So I took her to the Indigenous People's Resistance Day here in Philadelphia so she could see for herself that Indigenous people do in fact exist, they have their own stories to tell, and regular lives to lead. Thanksgiving, or as I now like to call it, Indigenous People's Survival Day, is the perfect opportunity for all of us to start truth-telling about Native American people. Over 130 cities across the United States have already replaced Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. 
the same thing can be done with Thanksgiving. And I'm not the only person with this idea. So here's what this looks like in real life for you and your children as Thanksgiving approaches. One, start with books. Share some of the new and classic tales about indigenous people and their culture with your children through books. That means no more pilgrims and Indians sitting down and eating turkey nonsense. I'm not talking about those books that probably a lot of us grew up with. I'm talking about books that center and highlight the indigenous experience. I'll post some great new titles that I've recently heard about on the blog. Number two, tell your kids and your racist uncle the truth about what Europeans did to the indigenous people on this land, but emphasize their resilience and survival. Do not continue with this dangerous habit of only sharing victim stories because that perpetuates this idea that Native Americans, indigenous people have been wiped out, and if they are still around, they're still in need of help of some sort of white savior. Number three, feast on Thanksgiving, but consider changing what you're celebrating. Can your feast be in honor of the indigenous people whose land we now occupy? Can your feast include traditional Native foods? Can you give thanks that the indigenous people our forefathers tried to annihilate could not be broken? Think about what you are feasting for. Think about what you're giving thanks for. I want to hear what you decide, so leave me a comment on the blog or on our Facebook page. Now, let's get to our conversation with author Layla Lalami. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Layla Lalami. Thank you for having me. So um, I want to actually begin by telling all of my listeners that I am very much a huge fan of yours. So I may start to um, sound like a fangirl a little bit on this um, episode of the podcast because I just discovered you as a writer this summer and kind of binged as many of your books as I could. And I chose The Other Americans as our book club pick because it just screamed melting pot. Um, It talks about all of the issues and things that we love to talk about in the My American Melting Pot community. So the first question I have for you is when you have to describe what The Other Americans is about, what do you say? Well, I usually say that it's a story that is about a family grieving the loss of their father. But on a sort of larger scale, it's a story about home. What is it and how do we find it and what what it means to all of us? Yeah. So what does home mean to you as someone who lives in the United States but was born and raised in Morocco? Yeah, this is a question that I get a lot. As you know, I've, I never intended to be an immigrant. It sort of happened by chance. I came to the United States in 1992 to do a graduate degree. And about a couple years later, I met someone, we fell in love, we got married. And before I knew it, I was, you know, an immigrant. So it really happened by chance. And what that has meant for me is that an idea that I hadn't really thought about much when I was growing up, which is the idea of home became a bit more complicated because obviously I travel between the two places, but I have lived now half my life in the United States and I have a family here. And so I think over the years I've come to think of it not so much as a place, 
but as a connection to people. So home is wherever my family is, my husband and my daughter and the people who love me. And so I would say for me, it's more connected to people than to place. Yeah. You know, the thing that makes the book, The Other Americans, so powerful, I think, is that we do hear from so many different people who are struggling with this idea of home. Like, what does home mean and who belongs where? And at the same time, you know, these ideas and these characters in this book seem so relevant to where we are today. You know, these questions of who belongs where, who gets to claim America as home. Was there something that, was there a particular incident in real life that inspired this story? Yeah, so about five and a half years ago, I was on vacation with my family in Wyoming, and I got a text in the middle of the night from my sister telling me that our father had taken gravely ill. And so we sort of scrambled to try to find a, a, you know, a flight to go to Morocco and be with him. I had been told that he was basically dying, and I wasn't even sure I was going to make it. But, you know, thanks to the miracles of modern medicine, he recovered, and he's in full health. And so we got to spend some time together and, and he recovered. But that sort of scare stayed with me. And when I came back to California, I realized one of the consequences of the decision that I had taken when I was in my 20s, which was the decision to stay here and to become an immigrant and later a naturalized American, has had this consequence later of separating me from my parents and giving me this feeling of constantly worrying about them because they're getting older and I can't really be there for them all the time. So I I thought, you know, it would be interesting to explore sort of these ideas in the canvas of fiction. And I wanted to put on the very first page something very scary to me, which is the death of a father, and sort of explore it from the perspective of this young woman who lives elsewhere in California and has to return to this small town in the Mojave, a town that she thought she had left behind for good, but now she has to return home. And in the process of doing that, the reader is introduced to basically other members of her family, to somebody that she went to high school with who later becomes a love interest, the detective who's investigating the case, a witness. So each of these characters take turns narrating the story of this hit and run, basically, And when they narrate the story each time, it gets recast as a different story. So you mentioned earlier that it's a story that talks about immigration. And yes, because when the mother talks about the hit and run, she sort of drifts into reminiscences of the decision to immigrate to America and how it came about for her family in 1981 out of a very specific set of circumstances. When the detective is narrating the story, it becomes a crime story. But at the same time, for the detective, that's just the case that's on the docket for her. But she also has her own concern. She relocated to the Mojave from Washington, D.C., and she's dealing with her own feelings of dislocation within the United States. When the love interest recounts the story, then it becomes a story of war because he's a veteran of the Iraq War. And he carries with him a great deal of guilt about his experiences and the things that he witnessed when he was over there. So each time a character takes turn telling the story, it's like a new layer is revealed. And I 
chose to do it this way because I wanted to do something very different from my previous book, which was a historical novel. And this one gave me the opportunity to explore different points of view rather than staying with one for 400 pages. So I got to sort of play with all of these characters. Is there one character that you identify with the most? I feel close to all of them, to be honest with you, because each one of them gave me something to think about and to experience emotionally. Naturally, I have a bit more feeling for the young woman who begins the story because she is an artist. She's a musician, and she's struggling in her field and struggling to get her art you know, in front of audiences. So I do feel a bit of kinship with her from that perspective. And of course, the fact that she's very close to this father and the story begins with her losing her father. I would say, yes, I do feel close to her, but it doesn't mean that I don't feel close to the other characters. In particular, the mother who narrates the story, her story anyway, who narrates her story of immigration and has sort of misgivings about this decision, that's another aspect that I enjoyed exploring, you know? So each one sort of gave me a gift in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I love this story so much because, first of all, I don't think I've ever read a story that was set in the Mojave Desert. (laughs) And you don't get to see these particular characters in the Mojave Desert, right? I mean, you don't see a Black woman detective in the Mojave Desert, right? That's just not common. And yet everybody who, you know, shows up in this novel has a reason for being there. So I love that. I love any story that challenges my ideas of where people belong. But I also just love the variety of characters that you brought into this story. And I just, you know, you said you identify with all of them in some way. And I'm just like, what's going on in your mind? Like, how did you come up with such great characters? Like, were they somewhat based on people you've known or people you've come in contact with? Or, you know, how how does a person bring to life such disparate characters in such an amazing, like, first-person way? Oh, you're so nice. Um, this came about as a result of both personal and craft reasons. So the craft reasons first. When I started working on this book, I knew I wanted the death to be on the first page to start with it so I can like sort of get it out of the way. This is what the story is about. And I made it a hit and run because I thought it, you know, would make it more interesting for me to stay with the book for 400 pages. Mm-hmm. But um, I realized right away that this could not be a story that's set in a big city because I wanted there to be a sense of suspense and just looming discovery of who might have done it, that it could be somebody that you've met in a previous page because it's such a small community and everybody knows everybody. Mm. And I wanted the sense in the story of like a smaller canvas that way. So I knew it had to be a small town. And the other reason too is that I think that, you know, we often think of the big cities as these multicultural spaces. And that is true of almost every big city in America with a few exceptions, (laughs) but even rural areas can be extremely diverse in ways that I don't think make it into popular culture. So I'm thinking, for example, of areas of the Central Valley here in California, which are farming communities. You'd be amazed at some of the diversity there. I mean, I remember driving recently, and there were signs 
in Punjabi. You know, it's just incredibly diverse communities. And I wanted to play with that. So the hidden run takes place on Chemehuevi Way, which is the name of the Native American tribe that first settled that part of the Mojave. And everybody else who comes after that is in some sense, both historically and realistically in the novel, a transplant of some kind. And so the personal reason is that when I started working on the book and I wanted to write about this family grieving the loss of the father, the story sort of got bigger and it became clear to me that it was trying to say something about America and the place of immigrants in it. And for that reason, I had to expand the scope to include different experiences and and to examine how they relate to this family. And in doing that, I did not base the characters on anybody that I know. So I don't know a detective. I don't know an Iraq War veteran. I don't know, you know, a person who's working as, you know, in the hotel and is a witness to the crime. But I have... I think, and we all do, the ability to imagine ourselves in other people's experiences. And what I did was both to observe other people and what they're going through, the people that I see every day, just to observe other human beings, to read about these experiences. So, for example, in writing from the perspective of this black woman, which is one example that you give, I mean, I've read... (laughs) a lot of black women authors to write about the Iraq War veteran. I read a lot from the veteran perspective, both in fiction and in nonfiction. So it's just basically doing the the labor of actually getting to familiarize myself with these experiences and also to observe them around me. I mean, I think also when you are somebody like me who's sort of an outsider, a transplant to America, you sort of have the opportunity to observe a lot and to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else because that's the only way that you can make sense of this new society that you've been introduced to. Well, you do it so extremely well. And, you know, as someone who has also read the Moore's account, where you can put yourself in the mindset of a 15th century slave in the most harrowing adventure throughout Florida, I am extremely impressed with your abilities to breathe life into these characters. Flipping that, though, your main character, the man who does get killed in the hit and run, who we also get to hear his voice, um, which I thought was really awesome, and his daughter, they are Moroccan, as obviously you are as well. And just fun fact, when I was in high school, I was an exchange student and lived in Morocco. And so I did, I did. And everybody, I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin and to go to Morocco was like a really bizarre thing, but it changed my life. I mean, I had never been out of the country and Morocco was the first place I ever went and I got to live with a family. So it was a really like deeply immersive experience and it was wonderful. Um, But I know that even in 2019, a lot of people don't know anything about Morocco, right? I mean, they might have a very vague idea of what Morocco is or what it's about or who lives there. And so why did you make the main characters Moroccan and what did you want people to know about the Moroccan experience, about your country, about your culture? 
Well, I mean, I think the reason is really quite simple. I wrote about Moroccan characters because I'm Moroccan, and I think that I've wanted to put them at the center of the story for that very simple reason. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was growing up in the 1970s, I mean, obviously Morocco had long been independent for nearly a generation before I came along, but the disruption that the French brought when they occupied Morocco for 44 years meant that even within what was available in bookstores and in libraries and in our educational system was really dominated by the French. And so my earliest exposure to literature, so if you think about things that young, young, young readers, so things like comic books and, you know, chapter books, things like that, those were all in French when I was little. And so my earliest exposure to literature were in French. And one example that I give is the Tintin comic books, which I used to love when I was little. And when I read them, I identified with the detective, Tintin. Mm. Never once occurred to me that in those books, I wasn't Tintin. I was, uh, you know, the natives in those books. And so when I became a writer, I think in the beginning, because I've been writing since I was a child, I think at first you sort of start to see the world in the same way as you have been shown it through those books. And it takes a long while to realize that, no, as the storyteller, you have the power to show the world as you see it. And that, for me, didn't happen until I was in my 20s when, you know, that realization came over me. And so in writing about Moroccans, it's very much out of a conscious desire to place these experiences that I never got to have as a very young reader in the center of books. Now, of course, once I got to middle school and high school and started reading literature for adults, there was plenty for me to read. But I never really forgot that sense of erasure that I had when I was little. And and, and not just in books, but also in television series and in the movies and not seeing anybody in those stories that looked or sounded like anybody I knew or had any of the same concerns or looked at the world in the same way. So it's very, very important to me when I write that I write about me, really, (laughs) and to make Moroccan characters the center of these stories. In this particular book, there are other experiences, but of course the book opens with the death of this Moroccan immigrant and explores it from the point of view of his family and others as well. And so they remain centered in the story. Yeah, you know, I felt like, um, again, like I have a affinity for all things Moroccan. I mean, I feel like it is my, I don't know, I don't want to say my second home because I haven't lived there, you know, since I was in high school. But still, because it was, I was there at such a pivotal time in my life, it just feels like, you know, a special place to me. So anytime I can read about or do anything that has to do with Morocco, I do. But one of the things that struck me is like sometimes in the descriptions, I would read descriptions that, you know, it's a story about a Moroccan immigrant. And I would always feel like I want to expand that because it's not about a Moroccan immigrant, so to speak, right? Like his story is so unique. And yet at the same time, it's such a quintessential American story. Mm -hmm. You know, man comes here, falls in love with America, like makes good on the dream, has his own very unique story. And I just also loved that everybody in this family has a unique story that's extremely relatable, though, right? It's not like you have othered the 
quote-unquote immigrant family such that their experiences aren't like the experiences of most every other 20-something, 30-something. You know, the girl who wants to do really well, she's a dentist, but she's struggling. You know, the sister who wants to be an artist but can't quite get that job right. You know what I mean? So Yeah, no, no, I understand what you mean. And I think that that's one of the one of the dangers that can happen when your story or your experiences are not centered in popular culture and then you decide to write your story is the temptation to make the characters exemplars of certain ideals or to make the characters the upstanding people because so often in the culture they are presented as villains. And I think that the problem with that is that in presenting people as perfect, it means that you're buying in the essential idea of their inhumanity, because that means you're you're in dialogue with them being villains, right? And so in writing from a different perspective like that, it is extremely important to write it at a personal level. And so while these characters are immigrants, and while immigration does play a role in their lives and in the decisions that led them to be exactly where they are when this book opens, they have a million other concerns. The musician, for example, is concerned about placing some of her compositions in festivals and getting her music heard. The daughter has the pressure of living up to this immigrant dream and keeping up with her dentistry office, but she develops an addiction. The father has, you know, this Mm -hmm. fear that's Mm -hmm. kind of happening in the background. So each of them has a very, very private concern that has nothing to do with immigration as a public issue, at least as far as we hear about it in the news. I mean, and this this book is so good. It's like, it almost felt as like juicy and delicious as like a soap opera in the sense that there was so much going on, but it was really elevated writing and it felt so important because so many of these issues You could have turned on the news and read about, you know, this hostility between the immigrant and his white neighbor and that conflict between them. So it just, again, I felt like it was such the perfect book at the perfect time, which clearly I'm not the only one who thinks so because you were just nominated for a National Book Award. Huge congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. How does that feel? Well, you know, honestly, I was trying to reflect about that. First of all, it was a complete surprise to me. I did not expect it. And, you know, I spent four and a half years with these characters, and I felt such joy working on this book, even though it wasn't always easy. It certainly had a lot of ups and downs, and I, you know, threw away a number of drafts and restarted from the beginning. I mean, it just was... Not an easy journey by any means, but it was one that for me as a writer involved a lot of growth because I mentioned earlier it was my first time writing from multiple first-person perspectives. And I really was trying to impose like some kind of narrative onto this chaos like that happened once I realized that the consequences of my own decision to immigrate. So anything that happens after that, the fact that the book finds a reader or that it is up for a prize feels like, you know, the proverbial cherry on the cake. So when when it comes up for the National Book Award, it was really kind of overwhelming, and I felt really grateful to the judges and and just grateful that more readers are going to discover this story because of that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I feel a great deal of gratitude. So, again, I'm, I'm such a fan of this book, and I don't want to go 
deep, deep into the details because I really want people to read the book. And again, the thrill of the book, even though I would not call this a thriller, you know, do you consider this book a thriller by any or a mystery? Well, it, it is a story that starts out with a crime, but it is not a crime story. You know, right, like exactly. Yeah, it, it really, it is a family story, it is a crime story, it is a love story, yes. all wrapped up in one. <laughs> it is. That's what I mean. I'm like, it's like us, I mean, and, not, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, like that when I say a soap opera, but like soap operas for their storytelling qualities. I mean, it's they're so addicting because they bring all the things into play. And that's why, you know, I don't call this a thriller. I don't call it a crime drama, but it has all of these aspects to it. But I mean, the romance, there's romance, you know, there's just, um, again, it's that family. It's a family saga. There's so much to it. And I want to just, I'm deviating a tiny bit, but the fact that this book is so detailed, like you said, it's first-person perspective, which even if you're not a writer, you understand how hard it is to inhabit the voice of multiple characters. But I just want to point out that English was not your first language. No. Can you talk a little bit? I did read an article and someone was interviewing you that you originally would write in French, but that you very consciously and intentionally stopped writing in French. Can you talk about what, why that was? Why did you stop writing in French and what it's like for you to write in English? So you mentioned earlier, I was born and raised in Morocco and the official language in Morocco is Arabic, but that's kind of not quite descriptive of the lived reality of most Moroccans. Arabic is one of those languages that exists in what's technically called diglossia, meaning that there are two Varieties. There's the colloquial variety, which is what you speak at home. It's how you talk to your mom, your dad, your neighbor when you go to the store. That's kind of what is your everyday language. And then there is the sort of more standard or formal variety. And that would be the language that is used to deliver the news on television, to read speeches, to deliver sermons in the mosque. So all those are sort of like more formal contexts in which standard Arabic is used. So you speak colloquial at home and you start learning standard when you go to school in kindergarten, first grade, and so on. Now, because of the particular history of Morocco, French is also taught in schools. So pretty much everybody, if you have even like a grade school or middle school education, you are tend to be bilingual because French is taught so early on in Morocco. So I grew up speaking colloquial Arabic in the home and both the standard Arabic and the French at school. And I, my parents sent me to a French school, so French was really emphasized at the school that I went to in grade school. And I think it's for this reason that later when I started writing, French was sort of the choice. I mentioned earlier how it was the language of my earliest exposure to literature. And so I wrote in it, and by no means is that an unusual thing for a Moroccan. I mean, because of the colonial history of Morocco, Moroccan literature is dual expression, meaning that some writers write in Arabic and some writers write in French. And both literatures are read in Morocco by Moroccans. So I wrote in that, and I think it wasn't until I did a degree at the University of London, a degree in linguistics, and I started learning English when I was in high school. I was 15. Uh, that was my first time taking a, an English class. And then when I went to college, I majored in English. And I started reading. Uh, when I was in London, I started reading the 
work of people like Edward Said and talking about the ways in which bodies of knowledge are created in order to sort of subjugate Native peoples, not to get too technical about it, but basically the ways in which language plays a role in affirming colonial power. And for me, you know, going back and reading a lot of what was written in French, it was very hard, really very hard, to dissociate the colonial gaze from the content of what was being written. Who was this being written for? And, you know, the fact that it's written in French is not a neutral choice. It's the choice that makes this story available primarily to French and French-speaking readers. So it just was, I just didn't feel very comfortable anymore with it. And so I stopped writing in French and just kind of minded my own business and finished my degree. And then I moved to the U.S. to do my graduate degree. And when I started working on my Ph.D. dissertation, it was in English, it was in nonfiction, obviously. So I wrote, you know, a couple of opinion pieces in the, you know, for the newspaper. And it occurred to me that, you know, for me anyway, English being so... um not being a part of the Moroccan experience made it a more neutral choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I could try my hand at writing fiction in English instead. And that's it. So I started writing fiction in English in the mid-90s, in 1996. Do you think you sound different in English? Did uh, your work sound you different know, in English? You know, it's really, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I've lived half my life now here and I think in English, so it's hard for me to know what do I sound differently in English? It's how I sound to myself anyway, at, at any rate now. <laughs> so um, it certainly is in a very odd way the language in which I have the most freedom because it is not mine. It is a language that I have made mine by choice rather than by imposition. And I think because of that, I feel greater freedom in writing in English than I would in French. And with respect to Arabic, it was a language that I read. I can read it just fine. In fact, I taught elementary Arabic when I was in graduate school to support myself. But the formal Arabic, I've never been really that eloquent and I've never really attained the level of expertise in it that would allow me to produce a work of this quality in Arabic. So it just became one of those things where it was a conscious choice but in the end, it was a choice that also suited me, and I sort of made my home in it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's just so fascinating to me. I mean, you know, we're, we live in a country, you know, the United States, where just, you know, speaking more than one language is just not expected. And there's just so much to unpack when you are raised with more than one language. My children are, my husband is from Spain, and so my, my children speak Spanish, And, you know, I'm so jealous of them because I had to work so hard to learn Spanish. And I remember when I lived in Morocco, one of my host sisters, she gave me a Moroccan English dictionary and she's like, memorize this. (laughs) I was like, like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, memorize this. And she's like, you Americans are so lazy. Like, she's like, I speak four languages. You know, she's like, I speak Arabic, French, English, German, and I'm learning Spanish. And I was like, so she's like, so I mean, it was a small pocket dictionary, but she really did not understand why before the three months that I, before I left, that I should have this dictionary memorized. And whenever I faltered, she would say like, you know, if you had memorized that dictionary, like I told you, we wouldn't be having this problem right now. Um, So 
it just is so fascinating to me how, you know, language can, I mean, if you have more than one language in your head and you're a writer, you know, what language do you tell stories in, right? And does that change maybe even based on what story you want to tell or who you're talking to? Yeah. And, you know, this may seem a little bit odd to your listeners, but it really isn't that odd. I mean, writers do, in fact, move between languages. So I can think of people like Nabokov, who started out in Russian and ended up writing in English. Mm -hmm. Samuel Beckett, who started out in English and ended up writing in French. A number of African writers who wrote in, you know, from Chinua Achebe to Mm -hmm. Ngugi. Ngugi, of course, the Kenyan writer, started out writing in English and then switched to his mother tongue, which Mm -hmm. is Kukuyu. Kukuyu, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it, it just, people do move between languages at least writers move between languages in the same way that people move between countries. And so it it does happen. Yeah. It's something that I should probably write about this at some point. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's really fascinating because, you know, the idea of having to decolonize your writing essentially is what you're saying by removing the yoke of, you know, French colonialism from your language, right? From your stories. So that's just really fascinating. I never really thought about it that way. So my last question for you is another kind of writer question. But so the first book that I read of yours was The Moore's Account. I read that this summer while I was in Spain doing research on the African experience in Spain. And again, I was just so amazed by this book. I just told everybody about it. I was like telling my husband the stories and I was like, we have to go to Sevilla. We have to go retrace his steps. And then, you know, we're going to go to Florida. I mean, this is just amazing. And the details with which you wrote this 15th century character and their life and like what life was like in, you know, the swamps of Florida. Again, I was just amazed. And that book I know was also just really, really well received. And I was just curious because that story is so very different from the other Americans in terms of time and space. Which kind of story, and maybe this isn't a fair question, but which kind of story do you enjoy writing more? Is it the historical fiction or contemporary fiction, or does it just depend on what's in your mind at that time? I think it just depends on what moves me. I go in the direction of the story. And I remember when I discovered the story of this enslaved Moroccan man who had been brought to Florida in 1528. That moment remains really indelible in my mind because I thought, you know, why haven't I heard the story before? Mm -hmm. I'm so fascinated and I wanted to explore it. I was just had such a hunger for that story. And that drove me for the five years that it took to write that book. And then with this one, it was more of like, oh, my God, I'm in so much pain and I want to write about it and figure out a way to make sense of this chaos. And then that's what moved me for the time that it took to write The Other Americans. And I honestly don't know what will happen with the next one, whether it will be an image or a story, whether it's going to be in the future, in the present or in the past. I don't know. But I have to feel moved and engaged deeply enough for me to want to stay with the characters or with the stories for a long time. And if I have that feeling, which is, you know, it's kind of a flash. It comes on, you know, it's not necessarily the most conscious decision, but if I encounter that feeling again, then I want to follow it and write the story. So in short, no, I, I don't really know what the next one will be. And sorry, and I said I had, that was the last question, but I actually have one more. This yeah. is truly the final question. When you're writing, like, so 
the story of the the Moore's account, again, I also, God bless you, because I was like, I want more information about this man. And I just looked for more stuff. You wrote it. So thank you so much for taking that on. But I want to know if you have an agenda for your work. Like when you are putting work out there, when you are taking on these monumental tasks, these stories that take so much to actually complete, are you writing with the idea that, you know, I want this book to have this impact. I want people to read this book so they understand that Estebanico was a real person, that he had influence, that he had impact, that it wasn't just a footnote in history. What is your kind of agenda as a writer? I mean, I think with that book, I was just trying to rest his story from sort of the way in which it had been erased by history, and fiction presented such an opportunity for that. I think generally all of my work is concerned with this idea of erasure, whether it's in the contemporary or in the historical. It really is asking you to consider who is telling the story and what you gain from having a different perspective telling that same story. I mean, and I think, yeah, I mean, as soon as you said that, I was like, that makes perfect sense. And that's kind of what I get from from all of your work that I've read so far. So um, thank you so much, Layla. This has been such a pleasure. And it's so funny because I feel like your books have come into my life exactly at the time that I needed them. That's really wonderful to hear. Thank you so much. And when are the National Book Awards announced? When does that happen? I think it's November 20th. It's Yeah, around then. Well, the best of luck. And I'm just going to say this, you know, everybody who comes on this podcast has some kind of like super duper like success after they're on the podcast. <laughs> I don't I mean, I don't want to claim it, but I, I mean, it's just been happening. I mean, somebody got a, a movie deal after being on the podcast. Uh, Someone else great. got a new like an editorial job that they've been that's waiting great. for. So I'm just saying if you get the award, I think <laughs> People are going to be just banging on my door because they're going to want to come on the show. So <laughs> I hope the I hope the good luck continues. Uh, thank you so much. Can you tell people how they can follow your um, career if you have an online presence, social media handles? I do. So it's LaylaLalami.com. So it's just my first name, my last name, .com. And all the information is there about all my books, events, etc. And I heard that you have quite a large Twitter following. Is that? I do. I do. It's such a, you know, it's my work avoidance (laughs) tool. (laughs) It's what I use to avoid writing. So you can find me on Twitter for opinions and whatnot. What's your Twitter handle? It's also my first name and last name. So we'll have all links to those on the website. So thank you again so much. Thanks very much, Lori. Okay, Melting Pot community, I hope you took something away from my conversation with Layla Lalami. I know I did. I just love talking to authors and hearing about their process, what inspires them, and speaking to Layla was no exception. I'm even more impressed after talking to her about all of the research that she had to do to write The Other Americans, not to mention all the research that she's done for all of her work. She's one of these people who truly like deep dives into the backstories and figures out who these people are before she commits anything to the page. I would consider her a very conscientious writer. And I was also like really impressed with her ideas about language, 
I never thought about language as being like a colonial vestige in terms of how you write and how you express yourself. So the fact that she's writing these incredible novels in a language that's not her first language or even her second language, but her third language, that is so impressive to me. I hope that hearing Layla's story and hearing her process and hearing what she really is passionate about is going to make you want to go out and read her books. The Other Americans is fantastic, but so is The Moore's Account and her other books as well. Let me know if you do decide to pick one up. Tell me about it. Tell me what you think. Share with me on the blog. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of the My American Melting Pot podcast. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps more people find and listen to the show, and it just makes me feel good. Another way people can find the show is if you just tell a friend or a colleague. You never know who might need some melting pot magic in their life. Don't forget you can find the show notes for today's episode on MyAmericanMeltingPot.com where you can also find fresh new Melting Pot content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you're just too tired to read and you just want to see some beautiful Melting Pot pictures, come to our Instagram page at My American Melting Pot. And if you want to just hang out with like-minded Melting Pot folks, join us on our Facebook page. Finally, I just wanted you all to know that I've added a donate button to the My American Melting Pot website. I'm not asking for charity. I'm just putting it there so that if you'd like to show your appreciation for the content I create on the blog and podcast, you can do so. Whether it's $1 or $100, it all goes towards the cost of creating this show. And I think it's a pretty awesome show. If you think so too, just press the button. Thank you in advance. I really do appreciate you all and all the support you give me. Episode 21 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening, and always remember to live your life in color.